0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I can't promise that you're going to particularly enjoy today's podcast but I hope you will truly benefit from it and that it will be to our unending profit as we consider today true prayer, true power. A sermon that was delivered on Sabbath morning the 12th of August 1860 at the Exeter Hall in the Strand from a passage in Mark's Gospel chapter 11 and verse 24 Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. This is sermon 328 in the New Park Street pulpit. It's uh, part of a sequence this week from 325 to a double header, 331 and 332, and our featured sermon then is 328. It is a sermon to do with prayer as the text indicates and Spurgeon begins by asking whether or not we really enjoy prayer. Do we delight in it or do we just know that we shouldn't neglect it? Do we pursue God or are we just afraid of having to admit that we haven't prayed as we ought to have done? There are many Christians, says the preacher, who have to complain of this, that they pray not so much because it is a blessed thing to be allowed to draw near to God as because they must pray, because it is their duty, because they feel that if they did not, they would lose one of the sure evidences of their being Christians. It's prayer by obligation, prayer as a, if not an entirely empty duty, then still one which is engaged in without much in the way of heart. And so says Spurgeon, if I can show you a more excellent way, If from this time forth you may come to look at prayer as your element, as one of the most delightful exercises of your life, if you shall come to esteem it more than your necessary food and to value it as one of heaven's best luxuries, surely I shall have answered a great end and you shall have to thank God for a great blessing. I think if you're a Christian your heart just rises to that, that this is what we want, this is what we desire, this is how we'd love to be, this is what we want To feel. And so Spurgeon wants us to look at our text. Remember, therefore I say to you, whatever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And he wants us to look at the text, then to look about us or around us, and then to look above us. Look at the text. There are things here which are essential to true prevalence or prevailing in prayer. And he lists them out for us definite objects earnest desire, true faith and a realising expectation and if you're not sure especially what that last one is then just wait as he unpacks what each of these things mean. To make prayer of any value, he says, there should be definite objects for which to plead. My brothers, we often ramble in our prayers after this, that and the other and we get nothing because in each we do not really desire anything. So he says, we are told to pray for particular things. We're to have certain concerns in mind. We're like people who go to a shop and we don't know what articles we want to buy. We're like perpetual browsers on an online store. We're not actually looking for anything. We might pick something up as we go. We may perhaps make a happy purchase while we're there, but it's not a good way to go shopping. And in the same way, a Christian in prayer may afterwards attain to a real desire and get his end. But how much better would he speed, how much more quickly would the work go, if having prepared his soul by consideration and self examination, he came to God for an object at which he was about to aim with a real request? Sometimes uh, in my family we laugh about my approach to shopping. I I like to go with uh, something to buy. I'm not a great browser plan it like a military campaign. I know what my target's going to be. I uh, go in, I get what I need, and I get back out again. And that's the way that we should be praying, says Spurgeon. We ought to know what we're going for. And so uh, we should make it our aim in prayer to be specific, to be particular. He gives us some examples. Don't merely plead with God for sinners in general, but mention some in particular. If you're a Sunday school teacher don't simply ask that your class may be blessed but pray for your children definitely by name before the most high. And he says don't be obsessive about quoting scripture to God. God needs no beautiful periphrasis, no roundabout wording in order to hear what we desire. Don't ransack the Bible to find out words in which to express your desire, but express those wants in words which naturally suggest themselves to you, and they'll be the best words. You speak plainly to God, ask at once for what you want, name persons, name things, and make a straight aim at the object of your supplications, and I'm sure you will soon find that the weariness and dullness of which you often complain in your intercessions will no more fall upon you or at least not so habitually as it has done before. So he says, don't get hung up on, he's not saying don't plead the promises of God, but don't get hung up on trying to quote something that you think sounds good or somehow communicates your own meaning. Speak to God as a child, to a father. He says, if you think you've got nothing to say, are you really so sure? Is there no legitimate object that a little self-examination will not reveal that you may knock at mercy's door and cry, give me Lord the desire of my heart. So the things that are in your soul and the things that come naturally to your lips, bring these to God and do it definitely, do it particularly. Equally necessary with a definite object for prayer, an earnest desire for its attainment. Cold prayers, says an old preacher, ask for a denial. When we ask the Lord coolly and not fervently, we do, as it were, stop his hand and restrain him from giving him the very blessing we pretend that we are seeking. So we're not just speaking our prayers. We are really praying. We are pleading with the Lord. We want something to be done in answer to our prayers. Otherwise, it's a formal exercise it's an expression of our dependence, our utter need of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And if, we were to, if this were enough to restrain all lightness and constrain unceasing earnestness, we would need to grasp the greatness of the being before whom we plead. We need to know what we want. We need to feel our desire. We need to understand that it's God to whom we speak. It was said of John Bradford, writes Spurgeon, or speaks him, that he had a peculiar art or ability in prayer, and when asked for his secret he said, When I know what I want, I always stop on that prayer until I feel that I have pleaded it with God, and until God and I have had dealings with each other upon it. Have you had dealings with God in your prayer? Do you know that you are prevailing with the Lord, pleading with Him until you obtain what you desire? Stay on one thing, says Spurgeon, till you have prevailed with that, and then go on to the next. Definite objects, fervent desires, and there's a dawning of hope that you shall prevail with God. But again, these two things would avail nothing if not mixed with a still more essential and divine quality, says Spurgeon, namely a firm faith in God. He says my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe, that it has a more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation or any other of those secret forces which men have called by name but which they do not understand. When a man really prays then it is not a question whether God will hear him or not, he must hear him, not because there is any compulsion in the prayer but there is a sweet and blessed compulsion in the promise so you lay hold of omnipotence god has undertaken to hear our cries our prayers then says spurgeon and this is bold language are god's decrees in another shape think of that omnipotence is ready to respond to the pleas of the saints The prayers of God's people are but God's promises breathed out of living hearts and those promises are the decrees only put into another form and fashion. So you can see Spurgeon isn't saying ignore the Bible for one moment when he says pray your own words. He's saying use your own words to express those desires which are formed and fashioned by the Bible which you read and when you can plead God's promise, then your will is his will. You see how you're brought into submission to God's design. Unless the eternal then will swerve from his word, unless the oath which he has given shall be revoked, and he himself shall cease to be what he is, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And now that fourth element, and Spurgeon says he's mounting one step higher. For together with definite objects, fervent desires, and strong faith in the efficacy of prayer, there should be, and oh may divine grace make it so with us, there should be mingled a realising expectation. Now forgive me if I pause for a moment just to say to uh, those of us who preach, do you see how Spurgeon builds his his points? He has named each of his subheadings over and over again. He has Gone through those four things with the definite object for prayer, an earnest desire for its attainment. With those two things, a firm faith in God. And then with definite objects, fervent desires, and strong faith, there should be a realizing expectation. So he keeps making sure that we've got those four subheadings firmly in our minds in order to help us to remember what is involved in real praying. And so as he comes to this last step, this realizing expectation, we should be able to count over the mercies before we have got them, believing that they are on the road. His point here is that like Daniel, who was receiving an answer to prayer that had begun coming before he'd even begun asking, that we are to remember that prayer is not a fancy or a fiction, but a real actual thing coercing the universe binding the laws of god themselves in fetters and constraining the high and holy one to listen to the will of his poor but favored creature man do we actually believe that god answers prayer this is that realizing assurance that realizing expectation we're counting the mercies before they've even arrived this is confidence this is, if you like, a further expression of the prayer that we have, the, the the confidence that we have in God when we pray, and Spurgeon says that's for everything. May we pray for temporals, that is, can we pray not just for spiritual matters, but for everyday concerns? Yes, of course, says Spurgeon. Take your smallest trials before him. He is a God who hears prayer. He is your household God, as well as the God of the sanctuary. Be ever taking all that you have before God. So you, you have nothing in your life that you cannot bring before the Lord the whole of your business. Bring it to God. Make sure that you know that this God is your God in all things and pray to him accordingly for the great and for the small, for the spiritual and for the temporal. And now says Spurgeon, if if that's what prayer is, if it involves that definite object, that fervent desire, that strong faith and that realising expectation, let us look about ourselves. Look at your meetings for prayer and look at your private intercessions and this is where it gets difficult. First look at the meetings for prayer. Spurgeon believes that every church should make a habit of gathering for prayer corporately at least once each week Uh, but uh, probably as a matter of course, that that we are to take opportunities for prayer. And he recognises that there are good things in the prayer meeting of which he speaks, but uh, that typically prayer meetings are not the strong suit of many churches. And he puts his finger on some of the particular faults and flaws Uh, The gift of prayer in the case of many, he says, lies in having a good memory to recollect a great many texts which have always been quoted since the days of our grandfather's grandfather and to be able to repeat them in good regular order. And so he talks about men who having strong lungs can hold out without seeming to take breath for five and twenty minutes when they're brief and three quarters of an hour when you're rather drawn out. Now, we may think that some of the prayers that we hear are excessive in their length, meandering and rambling and not getting very far. But he's not joking when he says that there are places you could go where a man might pray for 45 minutes together without actually saying anything of any real definite substance, expressing anything of that real uh, earnest desire. And so uh, what if you heard somebody who prayed for three minutes with real earnestness with real uh, passionate pleading with God rather than 30 minutes of the other sort Spurgeon says the one is praying the other is preaching too often we we tell God things that we we think he needs to know or you get these great rambling explanations lord we're praying for so and so because they're in this situation and you've promised that you'll do this and therefore we're asking because they're under these circumstances God doesn't need all that explanation and often neither do the people with whom we are praying. Remember, says an old preacher, the Lord will not hear you because of the arithmetic of your prayers. He does not count their numbers. He will not hear you because of the rhetoric of your prayers. He doesn't care for the eloquent language in which they're conveyed. He will not listen to you because of the geometry of your prayers. He does not compute them by their length or by their breadth. He will not regard you because of the music of your prayers. He doesn't care for sweet voices, nor for harmonious periods or sentences. Neither will he look at you because of the logic of your prayers, because they're well arranged and excellently comparted, or uh, arranged and organised. But he will hear you, and he will measure the amount of the blessing he will give you according to the divinity of your prayers." If you can plead the person of Christ, and if the Holy Ghost inspire you with zeal and earnestness, the blessings which you shall ask shall surely come unto you. Get into the business of praying, says Spurgeon. I'd like to burn the whole stock of old prayers we've been using this past 50 years mangled texts, people who begin a sentence of scripture and then end it somewhere else, either elsewhere in scripture or with some concoction that they have put together themselves. Oh no, says Spurgeon, it would be a grand thing for our prayer meetings if we prayed to speak to God just out of our own hearts. They'd be better attended, they'd be more fruitful if we'd shake off the habit of formality. And here perhaps is the key. Talk to God as a child talks to his father. Ask him for what we want and then sit down and have done. Look well to it then that you really pray. Do not learn the language of prayer but seek the spirit of prayer and God Almighty bless you and make you more mighty in your supplications. And I think perhaps that's where Spurgeon's then putting his finger upon the nub of the issue. If we prayed more like children. We would be more in the spirit of prayer. But we can't uh, go down that route for too long. We need to press on to the end of the sermon, look about you, look at the church, but look at your own closets. What he means is your own place of private devotion and prayer. There is no place that some of us need to be so much ashamed to look at as our own closet door. I cannot say the hinges are rusty, They do open and shut at their appointed seasons. I cannot say that the door is locked and cobwebbed. We do not neglect prayer itself. But those walls, those beams out of the wall, what a tale they might tell. And what is it? That we have been perfunctory, that we've been brief, that we've been careless, that we've been cool, that we have moved our lips, but our hearts have remained silent. We have not groaned out our souls and gone away trusting that God would bless us. But rather, we have shown very little faith. We've insulted God with our unbelief and our hurry, and with all manner of sins. We've insulted him, even at his mercy seat, on the spot where his condescension is most fully manifested. Now, I think if you're an honest Christian, hearing these things, you would say, yep, that's my prayer meeting and that's my prayer in private. That reflects where I'm at. That's the kind of contribution that I often make in public. That's the kind of investment I too often make in private. I said, I don't think we're going to enjoy this, but Spurgeon wants us to understand that when we pray like this, we are denying the very essence of prayer, those definite objects, those fervent desires, that strong faith and that realising expectation. So whether it's publicly or privately, we need to get to praying. And in order to help us to do that, he wants us to look above. Remember, he's told us to look at the text Then to look around us. He's told us to look at the text so we can see what prayer should be, to look around us so we can see where we are not praying, and now to look above us in order that we might be moved to prayer. And he wants us to weep, and he wants us to rejoice, and he wants us to do better. So, Christian brothers and sisters, look above and let us weep. God has given us a mighty weapon, and we have permitted it to rust. God has given us that which is as mighty as himself and we have let that power lie dormant. And he's He's actually speaking to God at that point. You have given us that which is mighty as yourself and we have let that power lie dormant. He's He's praying almost as he preaches. We shall never triumph till our image, our, um, our portrait, if you like, is struck kneeling. What he means is that we need to know, we need to show, we need to prove that we are a people who go to God on our knees for blessings. The reason why we've been defeated, the reason why our banners trail in the dust is because we have not prayed. He's referring to Constantine, the emperor of Rome, who saw that on the coins of the other emperors their images were in an erect posture and he ordered that his image should be struck kneeling. Now whatever you think of Constantine and his uh, profession, the point is that we triumph on our knees and so we need to be waking ourselves up, wrestling and striving with God. We need to confess that we have not prayed as we ought to have prayed, that we have not pleaded as we ought to have pleaded, that we've been careless, we've been casual, we've been vague, we've been heartless, we've been unbelieving but then look up and rejoice because though you have sinned against him even in prayer he loves you still you have not prayed unto him nor sought his face but behold he cries to you still seek my face and he says not seek me in vain we may not have gone to the fountain but it still flows as freely as before all our faults and failings All our sins and transgressions in prayer and intercession will not block the ear of God if we go to him. There is always an open ear if you have an open mouth. There is always a ready hand if you have a ready heart. Our joy then is that we can and we should yet pray. And so look up and amend your prayers. Look on prayer no longer as a romantic fiction or an arduous duty. Consider it a real power and a real pleasure. Spurgeon wants this truth that we have considered to now begin to fashion our thoughts and our affections. This sermon is not preached so that we can just say, isn't prayer a nice thing, but so that we might pray, that we might say, well, if this is prayer, I can, I must, I will go about it. If this is prayer, I have every reason to plead. I come to a God who is willing to hear and who is able to answer. I come to a God who is more ready to give than I am to ask. I come to a God ready to pour out his blessings upon his children as they call upon his name. And so Spurgeon challenges us. Exceed in prayer my master's bounty. Try if you can ask God for more than he's ready to give. I throw down the gauntlet to you, he says. Believe him to be more than he is. Open your mouth so wide that he cannot fill it. Go to him now for more faith than the promise warrants. Venture it, risk it, outdo the eternal if it be possible. Attempt it. Or, as I would rather put it thus, take your petitions and wants and see if he does not honour you. He's saying you can't uh, out-ask God's readiness to bless. You cannot go too far. You cannot ask too much. You cannot exhaust the generosity of your heavenly Father. If we only learned some of this, if we only believed some of this, why don't we pray until we pray? Why don't we pray that we might learn to pray and then go and pray why don't we seek the face of God and ask him to convince us of these convictions to bring us to the point where we believe what we say we believe to simply speak to God and ask him to teach us to pray has Christ ever denied his disciples that desire has he not shown us what it means to draw near to him so let us do it in these days and Spurgeon as we've come to expect is not going to turn away from his text without speaking to some who have never prayed in their lives. Perhaps a form of prayer, perhaps even for many years, but never truly praying. What will you do? You need to be born again and until you are born again you cannot pray as I have been directing the Christian to pray. But does your heart long for salvation? Has the Spirit whispered, come to Jesus sinner, he will hear you? Believe that whisper, it is true. The prayer of the awakened sinner is acceptable to God. If you are ready to call upon the Lord, call upon him and he will hear you. Turn away from your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, walk to God, go to him, fly to him, flee to him, trust in him, Call upon his name and ask him for the blessings that he is only too ready to give. When you call upon him, call on your God, I say. And when you call upon him, cast away your sin or he cannot hear you. Leave your sin then behind you. Ask him to take away your iniquity, to receive you graciously, to love you freely. And he will hear you and you shall yet pray as prevailing princes. Spurgeon never doubts of God's readiness to receive the, the needy sinner. And in that sense, that is what we, we go to God as. Every time we go to him as those who depend upon him, first then as sinners crying out for his mercies to save us, and then as children seeking his mercies to bless us. Well, may God give us not only a, an appetite for prayer, but the fulfilment of of that appetite, that we wouldn't just talk about praying, that we wouldn't just pray about praying, but that we would learn ourselves to pray, to pray with definite objects, with fervent desires, with strong faith and with great hope, that realising expectation. Do you believe that God answers prayer? If we do, let us pray and let us ask that God would show us his favour do come back next time. Our next sermon, I, I think, is going to be 336. The title is Struggles of Conscience. There are some uh, wonderful examples of preaching uh, around that, so uh, I'm trying to work out which is the best one, but I think that's the one we're likely to go with, and so do read with us. Do go to uh, the Media Grati page and sign up for the podcasts and the newsletters there, Uh, You can get a weekly newsletter uh, with the sermon that we're reading, the featured sermon for every week. But whatever else you do, let us learn to pray, for in true prayer there is true power. Thank you for listening, and may God bless us as we seek his face. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratiae. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.